You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington, Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. I'm an advocate for women's rights in childbirth, founder of Birth Monopoly, co-creator of the Exposing the Silence Project, a national photography project on birth trauma, and former vice president of Improving Birth, the nation's largest consumer-based maternity care advocacy organization. You can learn more about my work at birthmonopoly.com. Today we have on the show Tori, who is a labor and delivery nurse. She's been doing that for almost 20 years, and she's worked in several different states around the country, which I think gives her a really unique perspective to talk about how different hospital cultures and hospital policies can be in different geographic areas. That's kind of an issue that a lot of families have encountered is that that there's so little standardization across hospitals. And we know the research certainly supports that that, uh, for example, cesarean section rates vary from, you know, a low of 22% statewide in Utah to a high of 40% in the state of Louisiana. And then even among hospitals, there are very wide variations in in procedure rates and, um, and in common practices and routines. So, Tori, thank you so much for being here. Yes, uh, Kristen, thank you so much for having me. So let's start off by talking a little bit about what, you know, what I mentioned before about the fact that, you know, you've worked in different states and things, things are really different. The, the cultures and the environments can be really, really different. Can you talk about, um, for example, how the experience of maternity, maternity care and birth might be different for a woman giving birth in Arkansas versus a woman giving birth in California, which are two states that you have worked in? Uh, certainly, yeah. There's, there's a hugely wide uh, gap between certain areas. And, and my experience has been that California, in particular, Northern California, Coastal Northern California um, is the most, mm, I don't want to say liberal, but the most maybe evidence-based. Um, the, the women are going to be almost assured that they're not going to get an episiotomy, that their uh, choices will be at least uh, listened to, that a birth plan will be put in the chart and people will look at it and ask them about their choices. And you know, they'll be um, able to take their placenta home if they so desire. They'll be able to refuse vaccinations and newborn medications without any repercussions. Things like this, where the the parents have a certain amount of autonomy and respect. Not to say that it's a perfect system by any means, but when when I have worked in in states that are more politically conservative, um, for example, um, to generalize, which I, I feel like I can generalize, I, I think I see uh, a narrowing of respect for women, respect for their choices, respect for their ability to make informed choices. Um, I worked at a hospital that actually refused to get to even uh, obtain informed consent for for induction of labor, and when the nurses. Uh, I was there for this conversation. It happened a foot and a half away from me, so I know I heard this right. Uh, the nurses pressed the the doctors' group to start having women um, get informed consent, and the doctor read the consent and said, "Well, if I'm not going to do this because if I have them sign, read this, and sign it, they're not going to let me induce them." <laughs> so, so you this well, is this is really a law that you have to have informed consent, but from hospital to hospital and state to state, um, doctors and administrators pretty much do whatever they can get away with. And um, cultures can vary vastly in every way. And and like you mentioned, the C-section rate reflects that because ultimately uh, C-sections don't just spring, you know, fourth one day, they result from a, a, a lot of uh, interventions that start way earlier on and possibly even in 
prenatal care. Wow. Well, I mean, even what you just described with the the informed consent discussion about inductions, um, that says a lot. You know, if you apply that same thing to cesarean sections, if you're not telling women why you're recommending the surgery and then giving them the option of accepting accepting the surgery or not accepting the surgery, then yeah, it's it's pretty easy to see how you'd be doing more cesarean sections if you're not actually right. talking to women about it. <laughs> right. And, and, and the other thing is like, for example, this, this hospital that um, didn't want to do the informed consent, they induced almost everyone. And I can tell you, I asked them why. And they said, well, basically they really did say that it was because the doctors didn't like to come in at night. And so they wanted to get their patients delivered at a reasonable hour. And so they were very aggressive with their inductions and tried to get them so they didn't have to come in during the night. And so we're talking about C-sections. You know, every decision in labor, every single decision is either going to put you on the road toward a C-section or a road away from a C-section. And so, you know, uh, positioning and the timing of epidurals and offering non-pharmacologic pain uh, relief and education about non-pharmacologic pain relief and the ability to get off the monitor for times and be in the shower, or, you know, get out of bed after your water's broken. All these things tend to add up to the C-section rate in the end. And so when you have a culture that's basically unsupervised, each hospital kind of, these people just do what they want and they do it because uh, basically it depends on how much fear and uncertainty they're willing to tolerate and how much control they're, they're used to, to having in, in their communities, the, the women, how much control the women will tolerate, how much control the women are used to having over them. I, I truly believe that the women in any given community have more, way more power than they, um, they realize. And watching the riot in Orange is the New Black yesterday, <laughs> I realized, yeah, the, the inmates can basically take over if they really put their minds to it. And, and so, well, there, there are a lot more women than medical professionals. <laughs> in the United right, States. Right, right. And we have, we have um, the, um, the Affordable Care Act for the time being on our side because it is now enshrined in that law that we have a right to evidence-based care, that we, have a, a, we, we can demand it. And even, you know, I don't know how the new act is shaping up around that, but for the time being, it's, a, it's our legal right to evidence-based care so that if, if we are able to discern that what a practitioner is doing is not based on evidence, then there are, there are uh, hypothetically ways that we can go about remedying that. But it does take activism. It takes bravery. It takes women saying no. Um, I'm incredibly inspired by the women that have, like uh, Kimberly, calling for an assault charge, getting an unauthorized episiotomy was so helpful because women need to be, you know, I'm, I'm probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say that women need to be calling this what it is and they need to be asking for justice because that's the only way that, that practitioners are going to start paying attention. Wow. So just to clarify for anybody listening, Kimberly Turbin is a mother in California um, with her first baby, the obstetrician, gave her an episiotomy against her refusal. She said, no, don't cut me. Um, and the doctor cut her anyway. And um, a family member in the room just happened to be videotaping the birth. So she was able to, you know, pr provide that evidence to, um, well, actually she, she presented it to, to birth advocates first. And then some of us put together a little team to support her and were able to find her a lawyer eventually. And um, she filed a lawsuit against the doctor for medical battery, which is essentially having him having done a procedure to her without her consent. 
And that case settled earlier this year. Um, the doctor did turn in his license, but that was a really groundbreaking case because, you know, to, well, for one thing, it's almost unheard of for a woman to sue for an unwanted episiotomy. Unwanted episiotomies or non-consented episiotomies are very common. Um, the research shows that the majority of episiotomies are done without consent. And also the fact that she was able to just put a lawsuit together, period, is a really big deal. And that she brought it for battery rather than a medical malpractice action. Battery, battery is all about consent. It's not about medical necessity or, you know, how, how competent was the doctor, how negligent was the doctor. It's about who owns the body of the pregnant person and who gets to decide whether or not that pregnant person receives um, a procedure like a surgical cut to the vaginal opening. Anyway, so that is what, that is what Tori is referencing about women sort of standing up for themselves and fighting back against paternalistic and abusive birth practices. Well, thanks. It's, it's kind of nice to hear that coming from someone in the, in the field, Tori. (laughs) Well, you know, I can't, I can't stress enough how much, you know, women need to know that any time a person touches them, whether it's a doctor, a nurse, anyone, they have to have consent. And if you say no, they have to have a court order to do it or somehow be able to convince you to give your consent. And that consent can be verbal at the moment. You can have a very quick discussion. But if, if you say no, they cannot do it. And if they do do it, it is against the law. At that point, it is an assault. It's against the law. And you don't have to allow it. It gets very tricky because if someone's saying, I have to do this or someone's going to die, you know, your baby's going to die, you're going to die, then you don't know. And I've heard doctors say things like that that were not true. I've seen doctors pry women's legs apart with their elbows to, to put monitors in their, you know, internal monitors. I've seen doctors check people while the women were saying no. I've seen them sweep the uterus for clots while the women were saying no. I've seen them put their fingers in their rectums while the women were saying no. And essentially, those no's need to be strong no's and and backed up by family members who are witnessing and who are supporting them. And that is not okay. Having said that, there are times when there are lives to be saved. And so it's, it's a real sticky wicket. Yeah, that one, that one's, that one's tricky, but I would say almost never is it a life and death situation. Mostly it's because it's someone's practice. It becomes a kind of a pissing match where they're like, they're going to show you who's boss. And most, most, um, most times it's not something that is a life and death situation, like I said. So I I feel super strong about it because I just see it day after day after day after day, whether it's people coming in the room and saying, I'm going to check your cervix now, or we're going to break your water now. And it's like, no, that is not what you say to someone. You ask them, you are going to be putting your fingers inside their body. That is not a way to, to speak to a grown woman. Yeah. So I'm, well, on I that note, we, we need to go it. to a break really quickly. When we come back, I want to I wanna hear about what it's like as a nurse and as a woman to stand there and witness those situations. We'll be right back with Birth Aloud. Okay, we're back with Tori, an L&D nurse who was just talking about witnessing doctors penetrating women and doing things to them while the women are saying no. And Tori, you said, you know, it's really important for family members to be vocal and for the women to be vocal about their no's. Can you talk about what it's like to be the nurse in that situation, witnessing what's happening? And what are some of the, the kind of dynamics that are going on? I, you know, I've, I've heard people say, well, then, you know, you as a nurse, you should step in and you should say, no, doctor, you're not allowed to do that. Or you should, you know, somehow physically interfere. And, you know, I try to explain to people, it's, it's not that simple. It's really not that simple. Um, can you kind of illuminate what some of those power dynamics are for people? 
Yeah, I'd be really happy to. Um, first of all, it, it depends on what state you're in. If you have a union, um, you know, many Southern states don't have unions. And so something like that can get you easily fired, easily fired. And so um, a lot of women in those states cannot do that because many of them don't have another hospital in their community, for example. And on what grounds would they be fired? Like, what do you, th what do you think the reaction from the hospital would be? Um, I'm imagining um, the doctor would be the one to go to the administration and say, you know, Tori did this thing. How dare she? Can you just kind of speculate what that might look like? Well, yeah, I can, I can tell you exactly what it might look like because a, a, a hospital situation is very much modeled after a military model. And um, there's a hierarchy, there's a chain of command. And if someone on the lower rung confronts or crosses someone above them, it's insubordination and you can be fired for it. It's, there's, you know, it's up to the hospital to um, use their judgment. Is this a pattern? Is this causing problems? Is this, you know, but very few nurses are in, especially in the economy as it is right now, or in any position to risk their job for something like that, particularly since I have to say we see it so often. We, we would all be out right. of work if, if we did that. You would all um, be We would all be out of work if we, <laughs> really, if we stopped everything we saw that was objectionable. Uh, yeah, that wouldn't, that wouldn't work. Um, and so it takes more of a, it takes a different approach. If we see a, a doctor um, who's consistently behaving like that, I've reported the doctor afterwards. I've, uh, you know, written them up. I've made sure that other people are feeling free to write them up and are doing so. Spoken, the, the nurse managers have a lot of power. Um, People have, and I have noticed changes in, in doctors' behaviors after that's happened with them. So can you give an example of when you've noticed a behavior change? Yeah, yeah. Well, a doctor will, will start asking for consent and start being more sensitive. And it's like, you know, this stuff is not rocket science. You know, it, all it takes is an attitude adjustment. And um, it's, you know, easy for them to do. And um, another thing about... Uh, JACO accreditation, which is the Joint Commission, which is the accrediting um, board for hospitals is, and also for, for Medicaid um, reimbursement, patient satisfaction is linked to Medicaid reimbursement. Believe it or not, if you have a lot of patients complaining about a hospital, they're going to feel it in their, in their pocketbook. It's kind of astonishing that that's that's actually a reality, but um, it's it's true. So hospitals are anxious for their doctors to behave, and if the community complains and there's a low patient um, satisfaction, then they're going to want to do something about that. So that's something that people have an awful lot of power with. Well, I mean, so we've been sort of dancing around what I feel like is the main subject really of, of our interview of our, my radio show of a lot of the work that I do, which is obstetric violence, which is very generally speaking, abuse of women during childbirth. That might include forced procedures, coercion, or um, manipulation, um, or disrespectful, just disrespectful treatment. I've heard some nurses say that it's women exaggerating or making things up. From your perspective, is obstetric violence real? You know, Kristen, when you, when you said that, I almost, I do have tears in my eyes right now because, you know, it's the same story we hear about sexual assault victims, that they're making it up, that they're over, overreacting, that they're, you know, any number of disrespectful things that people don't believe them. It's a, it's a cultural phenomena that is bigger than, than OB, and it's, it's, it's about misogyny. And um, I have definitely seen it happen on the regular in every single state that I've worked in. 
from the from the most conservative to the most liberal. I am currently at a hospital where I don't see much of it, and it's a it's a lower risk hospital. Uh, we send higher risk people out, um, and and what I think my theory about that is is that the climate of fear is kind of dialed down there. That we see normal birth, people aren't keyed up to um, the level that they are in higher risk hospitals. We also have more time. We're not as busy. Um, and so in hospitals where there's a lot of fear, fear of lawsuits, fear of, you know, fear of death, fear of injury, there's a lot of control mechanisms that are put into place. And, and most of it is unconscious. Most of it is, you know, reinforcing our cultural perspective that, you know, men are in charge and women's bodies can't be trusted and, you know, all these all these already these attitudes that are already in place get kind of ramped up. And there's always this I I I know because we don't have universal health care that people do have to sue if there's if they have a child that requires lifelong medical care, then there's going to be a lawsuit. And that's a problem with our country because somebody's going to have to pay for that. And so everyone's afraid of lawsuits. Um, there's also a huge culture, sort of like in, like I said, in the military where everybody relies on each other. And if you step out of that culture and you go against it, you're going to be shunned and, you know, your, your enjoyment at work is going to be diminished and nobody wants that, you know, I mean, nobody does. That's a real thing too. And, and it happens. And so people go, they go along and they, they walk many times you're walking into a patient care situation where people are on another, they're almost disassociated from their humanity, you know, from their sensitivity, from their, from their best thinking. And they go into an automatic behavior that reflects the values of our culture. And, and it can get ugly when, when it's also frightening if, if there's bleeding or if there's a baby who's having a deceleration in the heartbeat people tend to switch into a mode that is maybe not the most attractive or helpful mode and um i see the worst violence happening in those those times where you know people are keyed up for whatever reason um i also see it when there's a a, a woman and her family who might have a birth plan, they might be extra anxious, they might be extra assertive, they might be outside the culture, such as, you know, kind of got some tattoos and got some patchouli oil or whatever thing that dis um, distinguishes them from the, the doctor class at the hospital. And it's set up to where, okay, we're going to have a problem with these people. And so the dominance behavior comes out. And uh, you know, microaggressions abound. I'll tell you, it's hard to be around. Um, diminishment of respect, people, people, you know, and racism definitely um, plays into that as well. It's not what people think. It's not like some kind of scientific paradise where we're just doing the right thing all the time by any means. It's not like that. You're talking about a lot of human attributes <laughs> when you're talking mm -hmm. about, you know, classism and racism and prejudices and that person looks different from me. Therefore, we must we're going to have a problem. And at the same time, you're saying it's a culture that sort of discourages acting like a human in your job, you know, the disassociation or that professional mode that people go into. I always think that's interesting. What is the definition of professional? Because in a lot of, a lot of times it seems to me like the definition of professional by default is as little, it resembles a human as little as possible. So any expressions mm -hmm. of emotions or, you know, empathy or authentic, just authentic human reactions are mm -hmm. 
are considered unprofessional, which I think is really interesting because I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think that's right or true, but it just seems like that's the impression sometimes. Right. Well, I've thought about this a lot and I've thought, well, according to who, whose values are those? And they're not, they're not uh, women's values. They are uh, business values, you know, I mean, if you could even imagine a culture where women's ways of doing things, which is not fight or flight, it's, what do they say, um, mend and tend. <laughs> yeah, um, or tend you know, and we, befriend or something. Yeah, right, right. Mend and tend and befriend and all those good things. And so, yeah, professional might be okay, we have mechanisms for listening. We have technologies for listening and communicating. We have spaces where we share um, our truth with each other. And, you know, these doctors, I've spent a lot of time with them, these, these doctors, these midwives, these nurses, and they're all human beings. And I see some of the worst offenders, sometimes I see them out in the community and they, they just look like, you know, regular people and I feel for them and it's like we have a system that is so sick that the hospital medicine always reflects the culture's uh, key core values and it's been that way forever and when way back when you had a tribal society you had a completely different style of healing and so we're, we're, we're working for control, we're working for profit, we're working for domination. You know, these kinds of things are, are going to show up in the, in the birth room. And it's, it's the time to fight it isn't always when you're having a baby. If, if all the activism that's happening right now is very, very important because it's, almost impossible to know what to do when I mean I myself had a baby at my house on the bed by myself because I couldn't even call the midwife because <laughs> I was in labor so you just you you can't make these kinds of choices when you're trying to have a baby and and so I'm I'm just so thrilled that that there are so many people that are that are working to uplift and mold this culture starting from wherever we have to start you know ahead of time because it's it's really difficult to do it you don't want to be in an adversarial situation when you're having a baby it's it's quite traumatizing for the women even if no one touches you without your permission just having that attitude that you have to be on guard and you have to be defending yourself is is antithetical to releasing and, and opening in labor. Yeah. Let's go to a quick break. We'll be back in just a second. You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington, Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. Okay, we're back with Birth Aloud Radio and Tori, a longtime labor and delivery nurse. Um, Tori, a minute ago, you were saying how sometimes you would see out in the community the, quote, worst offenders when it comes to violence against laboring women. Can you talk a little bit about the differences among doctors? I wonder... And this is pure speculation, but I feel like you might have some insight here. You certainly more than I do. What do you think makes one doctor more violent than another doctor? Or one doctor not violent at all? What are some of your observations about that? Well, it's not, it's not just doctors, by the way. It's doctors, midwives, and nurses. So I'm just going to say one provider versus another and you know I think there's a um, I know for a fact that if someone has had a trauma in their practice every time we have some kind of horrendous outcome whether it's someone's fault or not it affects people and they you can see people tightening up and then after that they're not going to be maybe quite so you know relaxed about things that might 
deviate from the norm for a second. Um, and everybody who's worked in birth for any amount of time has seen something like that. And I can tell you that it is deeply traumatic. If you have a woman who, for example, just dies from an amniotic fluid embolism. And right now, I guess there's some controversy as to whether that even exists. But, um, you know, we have we see things that can go very bad in in minutes. And so we have we have that. And then there's the people who um, there's a theory, I think, in in PTSD. And maybe it's an observation more than a theory that there are some people that are more susceptible to trauma based on perhaps early childhood experiences, you know, epigenetic manifesting that's going on from their grandparents' trauma, um, you know, any number of things you bring to your job that make you more, more liable to um, handle things differently, not maybe not as well, you could say. Yeah. And am I right um, and then they're not necessarily getting any trauma support? Like when that mom dies? We get a little trauma support. We get debriefing and sometimes we get chaplains and social service that meet with us and offer us counseling. And, but you know, that's, it, it doesn't make that much of a difference. It's nice to know that your employer is trying and that they care and that, that, that's nice, but you know, it sticks with you. And um, so the other thing is, though, that our, our culture's expectation is that women shouldn't die in childbirth, babies shouldn't die in childbirth, and we've, we've created this expectation that, you know, if someone dies in childbirth, then it's got to be somebody's fault. And while sometimes it is, many times it isn't. And so, you know, there's a whole lot of fear just about, personal and political kind of censure and, and isolating and people being upset with you. And these are your colleagues and, you know, there's all that fear because it's a, it's a team that you're on. And, and so there's a, just a whole lot of different angles of, of constant tension and fear. Like I said, especially in high risk places where unconscious behaviors are, are going to be working and then kicking into high gear when, when things appear to be getting scary. A couple of episodes ago, I had a, an obstetrician on who deals with a high risk population. And she was, she talked a lot about the blame culture in both her, in her residency and in obstetrics. And, you know, she was, she was saying about how like it can exacerbate that trauma that after something happened, after a mistake is made, the approach isn't let's support you and figure out what went wrong so we can prevent this from happening in the future, but it was more of a let's blame and shame you <laughs> in a way that makes everyone not want to ever admit a mistake ever. And that can be really right. detrimental to improving care right. and transparent practices. Right. And as our our economy gets more shaky. People are less and less, you know, more and more afraid of losing their job. And it, it's not getting easier to, to be relaxed and magnanimous. However, I have worked at places that where they're trying to create a culture of, you know, okay, people make mistakes. We're going to, we're going to figure out what was done. How could we do better next time? And they're really doing that. And so they are starting to create a culture of more accountability, more safety. Wow. I want to hear about I think that. it's, well, it's not that common, but um, I think Kaiser's one of them. I know I had a really long conversation with, with a procurement person at Kaiser. Um, and she told me that, Kaiser, uh, which is an HMO on the West Coast and I think Washington and, and Hawaii and California, they actually use their procurement, uh, meaning buying medicines, uh, equipment, etc., cetera, uh, to, to buy what works. And they test it out extensively and they, they don't pay attention to the price as much as how effective it is. And they are trying to make a culture of, you know, people can make mistakes. 
let's try to do our best. Let's get together and see what's working and what isn't working. And that kind of culture is really effective in creating a sense of safety in, in the workplace that people need. Because, yeah, it can be really blaming and shaming. And these are people that you have to work with really closely every day. And you have to have each other's backs. And you have to be able to trust each other. And when people start distrusting each other, it gets to be a downward spiral of misery for everybody and the patients are are absolutely going to feel the effect of that. Yeah. Well, and I think that's um, a super important piece of it is that you, you basically have patients on the receiving end of all the negativity, trauma, blaming that goes on in the institution, especially when the patient is considered to be at the bottom of the totem pole. Right. Well, you know, laboring women are in a unique position in the patient population because number one, they're, they're women. And so they've already got that working against them. They're, it, this is a sexual, you know, event. Um, so th that's another layer of shame on there. And then you have the fear, you know, you got the mother and the baby and it's all very precious to everyone. And so there's this huge amount of fear Basically, it's been my feeling that you, you could not condense a culture's uh, pathology more exactly into anything more than the care that women in labor are receiving. Wow. It's, it's like the teacher of our culture to me. And, and the fact that there's so little respect and that women themselves, what's, what's, Every bit is distressing to me as a nurse. But seeing the violence is seeing how tolerated the violence is by women. They, they, they won't complain. They, they won't fire their nurse. They won't fire their doctor. They won't go get another doctor. They, they just take it and take it and take it. And, and I understand why. And I have a lot of compassion for it. But... I just want to say, come on, stand up for yourself, which, you know, I plenty of times in my life have not stood up for myself. And I understand that I'm not blaming anyone. It's a dance that everybody's doing together. Yeah, I think, you know, this is something I've talked about pretty regularly with my birth advocate friends is that really delicate, that fine line um, between the woman who has been violated and wants to do something about it and that same woman who is traumatized and is paralyzed from being able to do something about it. Right. And I'm talking about, you know, yes. after the fact generally. But um, it is really difficult. It, you know, a lot of times I've noticed it will take at least six months to a year before someone is actually ready to you know, give feedback to a hospital or write a complaint letter or contact a provider who they felt was right. abusive or um, disrespectful or violated them somehow. And right. it is just, it is just overwhelming. Not to mention that you're dealing with a newborn at any <laughs> immediately afterwards. Well, it's, a, it's a normal reaction to trauma is to freeze. That, and I've done it in my practice yeah. where I've seen something on and I don't do anything. And then later I feel this incredible sense of shame. Like what? I just handed that guy this thing when he was doing, you know, he was checking somebody and she was screaming no. And I handed it, I put some gel on his glove. Like what, where was I? What, you know? So I, I understand that, that response. I, I certainly have done it myself numerous times. I, I can't deny that that's what we do. Yeah, I think, you know, I think it all just speaks to the fact that the changes, the changes have to be made. Um, you know, the meaning, meaningful change is not happening in the moment in, in a birth room as a person is giving birth. It's happening right outside of birth rooms it's happening on a much you know a much more strategic level and advocacy level and my god women women need to get involved in it mm -hmm. 
nothing's going to change if we all kind of try to forget what happened and then just let it go on and happen to the next person. Right. Right. Let's take a really quick. Exactly. We'll be right back with our final segment with Tori, our labor and delivery nurse. We're back for our final segment with Tori. And I'm really wondering based on everything that we've been talking about, how do you think we can best make change? And before you answer that, I, I want to just, I want to note that I know that you just saw Wonder Woman and we were kind of messaging back and forth about um, recording this episode right when you were going to see Wonder Woman and had just seen Wonder Woman. And it was funny because you immediately related it to the world of, you know, maternity care advocacy. So just go. Tell me all about it. <laughs> you know, I said to the guy that I was walking out with, is this how men feel after every movie they see? <laughs> because it was <laughs> one of the few times where I felt like, wait a minute. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to let everybody push us around like they do. And, and you really, it, it, it was so empowering to kind of flick off that internalized oppression and that internalized silencing and just realize like how much we do it to ourselves. And so the reason I say that is because I know that for us to make change in this system, we have to realize that we have the power. We are the consumers. We are the people giving birth. Birth is very powerful. And ultimately, um, we have it. And luckily, the law right now supports us in that. So I would, if, if, if you have a community that you have any kind of group, even if it's two or three people, where you want to start making some changes in your community hospital situation, I would first advise people to research the, the Affordable Care Act and, and what it means to evidence-based medicine, to research the JACO regulations about patient satisfaction, because that is absolutely something that we get drilled in our heads. You have to do this and that and the other thing about patient satisfaction. You would not believe how important it is for their accreditation and their Medicaid reimbursement. So you've got them those two things alone are, are, are levers that have an incredible amount of power. Um, you know, you can't normally expect them to really care about your feels. They may or may not, very possibly do not. But when you've got the law behind you and accreditation and reimbursement, they're going to sit up and listen. And that is the way you want to speak to them. And so I would, I would get familiar with the laws and I would get a, a familiar with their statistics. Um, any kind of patient feedback you can find, maybe on their website, Yelp, whatever. Put together a proposal. Put together something in paper. Take it. And I would start with nurse managers because they, um, they're kind of a mid-level. They have power with the upper echelon and they have power to influence the behavior of the the nurses and the, the providers on the floor. Um, that's my personal opinion. I know that they're also often more accessible. Um, you can also meet with the, the uh, you can meet with the executives of, of the hospital, but I'm going to warn you that they are politicians more than anything. And it, it's going to take a lot of meetings, a lot of pushback, a lot of going to the media, use the media. Nobody wants uh, bad marks on their hospital. They, they look, at, look at it as a hit in their, their bottom line. Um, they're all about the publicity. Um, also, don't forget to praise hospitals when they make even the tiniest little changes like women are now allowed to have clear liquids, <laughs> anything. You know, show them that you're watching. Show them that you, um, you know, everybody wants to please. And if, if you can give good feedback when it's due, be sure and do that as, as well. In terms of actually showing up at the hospital, you know, 
it, it people think bringing cookies is is going to make nurses be nicer to them leave the cookies in the room don't take them to the nurse's lounge leave them in the room <laughs> because then that your makes nurse a lot is going to get one <laughs> <laughs> um you know there's nothing wrong with with buttering the, the bread a little bit um you know you want to be you want to realize that these are human beings we can feel a defensive attitude and it sets up a real difficult relationship right from the start. So if everybody can kind of sit down and, and talk for a minute and be vulnerable, um, like they, like Brene Brown talks about on her Ted talk, just like we establish a common ground with your provider and keep it real with them is also something I've been able to work really successfully with. And I've seen doctors. I mean, doctors can be really nice. The worst of them can be really great and give you a lot of leeway um, if you kind of not, not butter them up, but just treat them as a human being who's possibly frightened, not as an enemy. Enemy, though they may be. <laughs> they, they're a person. And you can, they can relate to you and just give them the love uh, and in whatever way you can do it. Um, a lot of that is also established in prenatal care um, too. Not that you always get, rarely get the provider you see in prenatal care, but it's good practice. What would you say to those nurses who feel like, you know, the best thing I can do is wait for it to be over, who really just kind of feel like they need to go along with whatever is happening in the room, even if they really, really hate what's happening. What would you say to those nurses as far as patient advocacy? I would say I totally understand exactly why you're doing what you're doing. And I hate that you have to do that. Nurses stand to lose not just their jobs, but friendships at work, their professional reputation, which makes it hard to work in a team with other people. It's a, it's really a hard place to be in. And I would say the majority of places in this country, it's really hard to be a patient advocate because your, your stress level is going to be through the roof. If, if people identify you as, as that person with all the lip service to being a patient advocate, you learn it in nursing school, people talk about it in magazines. Nobody really wants a patient advocate in the room, like no practitioners. That's, that's a very unpopular person. You, a lot of nurses don't want to be that person, and a lot of nurses can't be that person because they don't have a union protecting them. And if they get a reputation in their town for being that person, then their children could go hungry, literally. So... I, I say I feel for them, and I don't, I don't have any good answers for them. I mean, behind closed doors, you and, and your patients can say and do whatever you feel in your heart is best. Well, we're almost out of time, so let's go out on a slightly different note. Talk to me about how, what feminism has to do with your work. You know, I started this work when I was very young and and I I saw it as this I gave birth and I realized that birth is an initiation into motherhood into adulthood that traditional societies knew was important and they women gave birth and men had initiation ceremonies and it's for a reason because you don't go from being a child to being an adult uh, until you until you go through some kind of fire. And when women have children to look after, they need to have that process and it needs to be empowering to them. And so it happened with me and I thought, oh, Nito, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help other women do this. And, and I, I think it's the most powerful thing that most women do in their lives as it should be. And um, so I see it as a way of empowering one woman at a time versus disempowering one woman at a time, which is, I believe on some unconscious level is what childbirth in this culture is designed to do, disempower women so they're more easy to govern and to control. So I think uh, feminism, you know, has in you know, feminism, advocacy of women being in their power is absolutely uh, behind what I do. 
But I have to say that classical feminism, particularly third wave feminism, has really kind of turned their back on on childbirth, uh, the issue, to a great extent. I've been really disappointed and frustrated with that for many years. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely feel that too. Um, And I also feel like, as someone who identifies as a feminist, it's my responsibility to change that. Right, right. And I'm so thankful for all the women that are writing about that and blogging about that and trying to to increase awareness about it because um, we have to. It's yeah. important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, for me, it's like for the for feminism to have any integrity, <laughs> this is... <laughs> This is a must issue. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's kind of a big little, um, uh, what, what is it, uh, missing link. I have a theory that it's because there's an assumption that if you have children, that somehow you aren't a real feminist, that you're going to be just a baby-making you know, Patsy, who hasn't really done the more important stuff in the world. That's my own personal bias. Well, I have some pretty strong feelings about that. I mean, I think it's just (laughs) that we've defined a successful woman as being as much like a man as possible (laughs) for a really, really long time. And we've defined a good feminist and a successful woman as someone who has a lot of, you know, professional success generally which can be, which can really conflict with home life. I mean, it just seems to me like it's been sort of by necessity that um, for a long time, feminism has rejected the idea of a fully realized woman as someone who embraces motherhood and even home life. Liberal feminism has been much more guilty of that than radical feminism. But yeah, more like men, certainly is not where we're going on this planet. We need more like women in every way. We need Wonder Woman and all the ladies on that island. (laughs) That was, I strongly encourage everyone to go see it and then leap out of the theater and buy a bow and arrow immediately. (laughs) I think archery is the answer to this. (laughs) This has been Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. If you'd like to reach me with questions or show ideas or anything else, you can email me at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. Thanks for being here with us. We'll be back every other Sunday at 1 p.m. on WLXU. We'll see you next time.